Hello, welcome to MHTV. It's lovely to see you tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about trauma and attachment and all things related to that. And we've got a fantastic guest for you. So we'd really like to hear what you think and we'd love you to join in with us. Um, let me hand over to Dave now and he can tell you how you can join in. Dave? Hi, uh, great to have you all with us tonight. Uh, as always, a couple of different ways you can join in. The first is over on X, formerly known as Twitter. If you just put in the hashtag MHTV, uh, you'll be able to see any tweets that we're sending or anyone else, and we'll be able to see yours too. Uh, so it's a great way to get in your comments and questions. Uh, the other option you've got is over on Facebook, still called Facebook. Uh, you just have to head to the right side of the screen uh, next to the uh, video that you're watching uh, and just, again, put in any of your comments or questions. But without further ado, straight back to you, Nikki. Absolutely. And let's come to our guest. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. So I'm uh, Sarah Lewis. I live in Mayo, but uh, for years I've lived up the north uh, of Ireland. And so I did my mental health training up there in Purdysburn. It was at that stage, it's um, called Not Bracken Healthcare Park now. And of course, nurse training has changed so much uh, since I did my training. And so then um, I worked in nursing homes and residential care and um in 2002, then I started to work with children and young people. And so I've been working with children and young people ever since. Um, I worked in the adolescent inpatient service for eight years. And then for 10 years, I worked with the therapeutic team for looked after and adopted children in the Southeastern Trust in Northern Ireland. <clears throat> and so for about the last year and a half or so, I've been working independently. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. So I guess what we're going to focus on tonight is particularly looking at trauma and attachment. And I think that's the best way to get started, just to define those terms. So what are we talking about? So when we're talking about attachment, what is that? Okay, so attachment are the, the strategies that we're born with. Um, they're strategies to help keep the infant close to the mother for survival and also um, to keep the mother close so that they can regulate uh, the emotions and uh, the child's emotions when they've had frightening experiences. Mm -hmm. and so we see attachment behaviours in babies all the time. If you, if you think about a baby, um, the kinds of things they do to um, draw the attention of the adult, you know, they smile, they have eye contact, they, go, they gurgle, mm -hmm. they do all sorts of things, they cry, mm -hmm. um, all designed to keep the adult close so that they can survive. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that these are things which are innate or are they taught or? They are things we are born with. They're strategies we're born with. And so um, whenever, so keeping the infant close to the mother and regulating the emotions, whenever that doesn't happen, well, then we have other survival strategies that we develop to try and keep people um, closer, um, our attachment figures closer. So there's lots of things, you know, can you think of anything that's uh, attachment strategies that children use smile oh you said smiling didn't you smiling absolutely yeah um you might have whining you might have clinging you might have children and um, skewing they're telling you that they want something they believe something but actually their their behavior lets us know something else mm. um, there's lots of different strategies that we mm. we develop um to survive to make sure that that adult stays as close as is safe to meet mm. our Mm. And I guess at, at different stages, you'd expect to see different types of behaviour. Absolutely. Okay. And so the Absolutely. other thing we were talking about was trauma. So when we're talking about trauma, particularly for sort of young children, what we what sort of things are we thinking about there? Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking about um, 
developmental trauma more, you know, um, there's one-off traumas can really impact um, on a person's sense of safety. However, developmental trauma has happened within a relationship, within um, the relationship of that caregiver. Somebody who should have been safe has not been right. safe. And so um, the impact of early repeated trauma can um, and loss can really impact on the child's sense of safety and impact on their ability to make connections mm. with other people to um and those those experiences happen generally early in life mm. so we're kind of talking about sort of adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. yeah so often you'll see them um referred to as aces um yeah. there's been some really good if anyone's trying to get their head around aces um uh, scotland Public Health has done some really useful videos that are online on YouTube, so do have a look at those. Um, but basically, we're talking about different types of trauma. They could be um, family disruption. They could be aggression and violence, uh, sexual inappropriateness, um, having um, a household that maybe doesn't have heat, light all the time, things that just disrupt a child's um, happy and healthy thriving, basically. Those are the sorts of things yeah. that we're talking about. Absolutely. And so adverse childhood experiences can lead to toxic stress and that can really impact on a child's sense of safety. And uh, so there's um, in Beacon House, they've got um, lots of information on their website, lots of information about uh, the impact of trauma. And um, one of their documents is really helpful. It talks about the domains of development and how trauma impacts on those and how um, so we know from the ACES study that uh, that toxic stress can impact on all um, all parts of our life. You know, people can have mental health problems, more likely to have substance misuse, can have physical health problems, earlier death, all those things. And so um, that impact of the early development of that developmental trauma is highlighted um, by Beacon House. So that's really helpful. Mm. Yeah, you can see how no matter where you are, whether you're working with children and young adults or whether you're working with people with more entrenched issues, you can see how actually having a really a really good understanding of kind of life course and trauma and trauma-informed care is actually vital throughout mental health. You can't really do your job without having this type of work in your mind. So it's really yeah. helpful to have you here tonight. I'm really pleased to have you. So let's, we've talked a little bit about trauma and, and attachment. Can we talk about how they impact each other? Because we sort of jumped from being a baby to being an adult who's trying to survive so let's go back and think about how trauma and attachment connect to each other yeah and so if if we've learned early on that um, an adult isn't a safe person they're not going to meet um, our needs well then that will impact on how we try and get our attachment needs met mm. and so survival strategies and um, we see different um attachment styles coming through and so um, Patricia Crittenden has highlighted actually that we we um, didn't say butterfly, but I'm going to say butterfly. So we, we butterfly, you know, land a different um, attachment styles depending on who we are with. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, yeah. because you behave differently with your partner as you do with your um, your teachers, as you do with uh, your colleagues on a night out um, um, with your friends. We have totally different attachment styles of different people, depending on how safe we are. And so often we have children um, that will come to me and it's been identified perhaps that they have um, an avoidant attachment style or um, an ambivalent attachment style, both anxious um, styles. 
but actually sometimes they have um ambivalent be, um, attachment behaviors where um they're not sure that their their needs are going to be met that they're safe with their um with their adult mm. and so they keep them at arm's length or somebody who's an anxious um attachment is just is that child that's holding on to the apron strings and just mm. can't leave it's not safe to be away from the adult and so mm. need to explore their environment get out into the world and learn about things are um are hidden and they're just showing you their need to be right beside you. Mm. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose some of this will be character, some of it will be learned behaviour, or it depends how old the child is at the time, the nature of the disruption, if it's something that's been ongoing since birth or something that's just started. So there isn't really a set thing that you can look for. It's about understanding the risks for that individual child. Yeah, having a sense of... um, their trauma nurture timeline can be so helpful, you know. Tell me a little bit about that. So um, I don't even know who is, um, let me see, I do know who it is that uh, designed it. Um, oh, Bruce Perry. And uh, so thinking about um, what was happening, was this a planned pregnancy? How did the pregnancy go? How was mum's health during pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Um, was there violence? Was there... Um, separation was there mental health problems was there um poverty and yes. so uh, dietary intake wasn't great yes. was there a lot a high level of cortisol in mom's system that's going to really impact then on the infant's brain yes. cortisol is the stress hormone and so when the child is born how did the birth go how did the um the child settle in when they came home did they feed well? Did they uh, settle to sleep? Were they a child that let you know I have needs or were they a quiet baby? And we hear a quiet baby and we, we get worried, don't we? You know, because um, babies, their um, attachment behaviours that they're born with is to cry and let you know um, mm. that they have needs. And so right. some children are quieter than others, but, um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's not always an indication of um, that there's something going wrong. Mm. But then as they were growing, did they meet their milestones? Um, were there any significant events uh, during their life? Uh, was there um, substance misuse? Was there alcohol um, or drugs? Was there um, domestic violence? Was there separation? Was there a parent in jail? Was there, you know, all thinking about the ACEs, but also thinking about the things that are going to really atta- um, impact on a child's sense of safety. How did they get on when they went to school? What was that transition like? What was the transition from uh, primary one to primary two? How did they manage that different um, attachment figure? Um, How did they get on with their friends? You know, all those things. And then as we're heading towards puberty, what was going on there? How did they manage? How did they manage to transition to secondary school? Mm. What about parents still together? Was there separation? What was happening uh, for Mm. this child? What has impacted on this child's sense of safety and well mm. and their yeah. sense of I am worthy of good care? Mm. And it makes sense as well to have it on a timeline because then you can see, you know, if you've got a short time when things are disrupted, it's probably not going to have the same kind of impact as ongoing issues and multiple issues with a lack of support person in the house. All those things will make a difference to why some children manage and some children struggle. Absolutely. Lots of different things going on in, in play there. And the other thing to point out is that, you know, as a, as a parent or a caregiver, you can love your child, but still have a negative impact on them at times. And so it's not about it's not a judgment thing on a parent to say, or a caregiver to say, 
that um, a child is, is distressed. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so um, children develop their coping strategies um, in the relationship with their parents. And so um, whenever we're rocking and soothing our child, we're teaching them, oh, you're distressed, I'm going to help you to settle. Um, oh, you might be hungry, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to meet your needs. And so parents are teaching over and over and over, you're worthy of good care. And so mm -hmm. children who haven't had that experience, well, then they don't have the sense that I'm worthy of good care. And they often have that sense of I'm not enough, I'm not mm -hmm. clever enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not um, tall enough, I'm not mm -hmm. blonde enough, I'm mm -hmm. not uh, lovable enough, I'm not worth worthy enough for you to turn up for access visits with me. Mm. You know, all the, those enoughs, they just mm. don't feel like they are enough. And uh, that uh, really um, that hit home, hits home for me a lot. You know, mm. that uh, children are feeling that way, and mm. the system around them aren't always aware of mm. what's going on for them. Mm. It's interesting, one, isn't it? I think sometimes when you when you think about those those experiences happening to an adult. An adult would struggle to process them, understand them, understand how to ask for help and support, even understand what's happening to them, whereas yeah. children don't have any of that benefit. And also sometimes I think adults think, well, oh, children are stupid, <laughs> but they don't have the depth of feeling that adults do. And of yeah. course, how could they not? They're baby adults, aren't they? So they do have, you know, quite, really quite complex feelings and yeah. emotions, just like any other human being. Absolutely. And uh, there's also um, a belief that children are resilient. Mm. So they won't remember the things yeah. that happened to them in, in that early developmental um, trauma um, stage. And so it, it really depends on what you read and who you read, mm. um, what is measured as developmental trauma. And so sometimes it's pre-birth to age six and sometimes it's pre-birth to three, sometimes it's not to three. Mm. And so it really depends. And so adults who have a sense of, well, they don't remember it anyway, um, it won't affect them, um, are actually, they're missing uh, the point here. You know, this child has had very difficult times and uh, that will impact on their ability to connect with others, their sense of safety, their sense of belonging and um, sense of worthiness. And so... Mm. Um, where was I going? <laughs> so uh, let me think. Mm. A sense of worthiness and belongingness. Well, this yeah. impacted. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we remember trauma through our senses. And mm. we, um, if trauma, developmental trauma has happened between uh, the ages of naught to three, say, so that's the most yeah. common thing that you'll hear: developmental trauma, um, naught to three. So if it's happened, then we haven't got words. We're pre-verbal. We haven't got um, the cortical development uh, to remember in words, in logical thought, what has happened to us. But we might become very distressed because the bedroom wall is now blue, the same colour as before. Or we hear a noise or we're reminded by Christmas or there's a smell that's really distressing us. And we have no clue that that's why we're feeling unsafe. But our, our, the body keeps the score um, is one of the books that I read before. and so. Um, a lot of our work that we do with children who have experienced trauma is about supporting them to help feel safer and calmer through the senses and regulating through the senses. Yeah. So, um, again, um, thinking about the neurosequential model of therapy, 
Mm. Um, we started at the, the bottom up at the brainstem. And so uh, the brainstem is responsible for things that we're not really, um, we don't need to be in control of, like digestion and mm. uh, breathing and heart rate. Mm. And so if we can regulate the brainstem and uh, help the child to feel more settled and safer uh, through sensory strategies, mm. well, then um, the child is more in, in, in a better place to start to do some therapy. Mm. And so, um, do you know this model of the brain? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. the brain stem and then the limbic part of the brain and the yeah. knuckles are the cortical part of the brain. So if mm -hmm. we start here, the brain develops from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So um, you're born, as long as everything has gone okay in pregnancy, yeah. and there's no physical health problems, your brain stem is fully functioning whenever you're mm -hmm. born. Mm -hmm. And so then follows the limbic part of the brain is developed. And so by the time you're hitting your teen years, you have fully developed emotions. And so we've all met teenagers with fully developed emotions. Oh, yeah. Might not have the cortical, the, you know, the logical thought that goes with that. And so mm. that's the last part that develops. And so if we start here, now the important thing to remember is the brainstem, you know, how this part of the brain develops impacts how this part of the, the limbic part of the brain develops and how the cortical part of the brain develops. Yeah. And so if we start with the brainstem and help regulate the brainstem, then we can start to work on the emotion, the limbic part of the brain, we can build attachments, safe yeah. attachments with safe adults, yeah. and support children, and help them to process their trauma memory and teach parents how to regulate themselves. And um, particularly parents who have children who have had really tough times and there may be new parents and they're trying to develop um, a relationship with um, a child who's um, had a relationship with attachment figures and then they've moved okay. and to develop an, another relationship with attachment figures and then they've moved um, and then they've moved again and again. And so there's so many children, you know, it's really um it's really sad to read, you know, some children have had 15 foster placements. Yeah. And how how does that child function? How do they trust that this, this adult with their new rules and their new shaped house and their new smelly house or yeah. their new um, car and their new rules and their new environment, how do they trust that this person is safe? Because the last person I give you a chance and actually you ditched me or something yeah wrong or yeah. you know, your children were more important than me or you know all those messages that the yeah. children have got yeah I think and you so, said can I just stop you for a second just go back to something you said I think was really important was when you're working with parents you need to remember that they are traumatized people as well yeah and that often people haven't been shown the skills they need to parent they never experienced them themselves and one of the things your work that you do is so important around is actually breaking that cycle yeah you know that kind of hurt people hurt people you know and if you've yeah. never been if, if when you were a baby you didn't know if you're going to get picked up cuddled smacked it's not surprising that when you're faced with being a new parent you're overwhelmed you're in a new situation you've never been in and somebody's looking to you for steady emotional support how, how are you supposed to conjure that up from nowhere Absolutely. You know, so it's really key work I think this idea about helping parents self-regulate yeah. 
And some parents will do exactly as their parents did because that's what they learned. And they're like, well, this did me no harm. And, you know, we'll just do it that way. And now their parents will do the exact opposite. And of course, there's the whole range in between. But some parents will do the exact opposite because they didn't agree with how their parents reared them themselves. And so if you've got somebody who's doing the exact opposite, you've got somebody who's breaking new ground they're reinventing the wheel really because they've seen what they don't like and they're trying right. something that they think might work right. and so they need a lot of support too don't they absolutely so we've we sort of established this idea about you know that what, what we're talking about when we're talking about attachment trauma how they interrelate to each other we've talked a little bit about kind of how how human beings develop how their brains develop and, and and also i think another thing you said that really struck me was different things kick in at different times so emotions are on board well before rational thoughts if that ever does turn up comes and i think sometimes we hold children and young adults much more responsible for things than they really could possibly be we know biologically they're not able to make complex steady decisions and yet we imagine that that's something they'll just conjure out of nowhere absolutely and so um adolescents uh, you know they have puberty which is it's understood and you hear about hormones raging and whatever and what we don't hear so much about is the brain development the surge in brain development that happens again in adolescence and so literally it's as if you have um in your brain you've created so many neurons and neural pathways that aren't being used anymore it's like you have country roads inside your brain and so there's roadworks for a while while you're an adolescent and so there's roadblocks everywhere and so the logical thought uh, can't happen while the brain is pruning what isn't being used and it's um, strengthening the 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 connections in the neural pathways that are being used and so at that time we don't have a logical thought available to us so much it's not that it's not there but it's uh, it's not so much available to us and that's a, a key part of adolescent um decision making and also also the functions of um adolescence you know an adolescent's job is to become an individual person away from different from their parents or maybe the same but for a while they have to push those parents away so that they can create the space to be themselves to figure out well who am I? Do I go to mass? Do I uh, like piercings in my nose? Do I drink? Do I do drugs? Do yeah. I like tattoos? Yeah. Do I want to be an accountant? Do I want to be a doctor? Do I want to be, um, you know, a road sweeper? What do I want to be in life? Who do I want to be? What are my values? So they have to push away the parents who have given them their values um, and create that bubble of space yeah. to try and figure that out. And parents can find that so hard and hard to understand as yeah. well. I think it probably feels very rejecting, doesn't it? So that is yeah. almost difficult. But why I always remember is the feelings of absolute rage I had as a teenager for no reason at all. I can remember my mom saying, you know, how was your day at school? And being like, why are you always in my business? Where it's like a completely normal thing to say when someone's just walked mm-hmm. in the house. And it was just, I think when you when you remember what you were like or what your brothers and sisters were like or whoever is like, you suddenly think I'm not being 100% reasonable in having an expectation, not an expectation that a young person will be kind or try to help, but to to make something without any resources is not a reasonable request. So tell me a little bit about how you work to support children to develop new attachments, because we've talked a little bit about some of the other issues. So suppose you've got a situation where things have gone wrong and you're working with a child or a young person and 
there's an opportunity to kind of lay down some new tracks to, to change yeah. this trajectory. H how do you do that? Okay, so I generally work with uh, parents who are new parents, you know, they're foster parents or post-adoption, but not always. You know, I do work with some birth parents as well to help support and reconnect. And uh, so we support the network first and um, thinking about helping the network to have um, a good trauma and attachment based understanding of this child. What has this child's life journey been like? How has it impacted them? And um, what are the issues around here? What can we do? How can we work together? And so that's the key thing, because quite often you have services where there's um, different professionals working with the best intentions, but they're not working together with this at the same pace. And so yeah. um, it's recommended um, in the neurosequential model of therapy. Not that I'm trained in it. I just no, really no, no, but just get it and I understand it very well. And so um, it's very important to start at the beginning with um, the network, help them to understand what's going on. Uh -huh. Then we all start at one level. We start and we work together using the same approach. We start at the brain stem, and then we're working on the limbic brain, you know, and using things like DDP, dyadic developmental psychotherapy, and theraplay, um, using some therapeutic parenting uh, strategies, maybe using video interactive guidance and EMDR. So I don't do video interactive guidance and EMDR, but I do the others. And uh, so um, then working with the, the thinking part of the brain, helping the child with the, the cortex and yeah. so help them to, um, to work on their identity, have a sense of who am I, especially those children who've been plucked out of their birth families and they've been dropped into this foster family and again and again and again. And, and so how old are children when you start to do identity work with them? It depends on the child. It really depends. Um, some children move, they're settled, um, they're feeling um, they have a good connection, they've built a good attachment to their caregiver, they're, they're feeling safe, but they still want to know, well, where's my mom and why am I in care? Um, and so at that stage, you're helping them to um, to figure out, well, who is their, um, their, or what is their identity? What is their life story? Um, what is the narrative around this? How can we explain why you're in care in an age-appropriate way? Must be so. That must be just nightmarishly difficult. Um, one of the things that you know, you mentioned a few. You mentioned things like EMDR and Theraplay. Can you just explain a little bit about what, the, what those things are? Okay, so Theraplay is um, a therapeutic way of um, working with children and mm. uh, their caregivers to build an attachment relationship, and so we do that through play. Mm -hmm. um, in Theraplay, uh, there's four dimensions, structure, engagement, nurture, and challenge. They're the dimensions that we look at and play. And so um, we do an assessment and then identify from, from there um, a care plan um, based or a treatment plan based on mm. um, the outcome from the assessment. It's called a MIM. And so um, then we're looking uh, to see well, what dimension of good parenting does this child need more support in? Okay. What dimension of, of, or what dimensions? Of, so it's not diagnostic, it's... It's it's not about um, saying this child has X attachment or they've got okay. ADHD or anything like that. It's looking at the attachment. It's a snapshot in time. 
And it's basically right now, at this moment, this is what we see in these circumstances. And being very aware, you know, if you're saying to um, a parent, come in here now and I'll just video you and see how you're getting on with your child, Mm -hmm. the connection between you. And holding that in mind, you know, that's um, that's very daunting for some parents. Very daunting for anybody. (laughs) I think being watched interacting when you know that there's a problem. Yes, so difficult. Absolutely. And so you see a task and you're like, can't do that because she's that child's going to blow up. Uh, she's going to become so dysregulated. Mm. And so we do that and then um, we follow a protocol. And then DDP is dyadic developmental psychotherapy. And it's um, similar in that the parent is always in the session, like in therapy. Mm-hmm. Parent is always in the session. Parent does more work than the child does. They mm-hmm. attend more sessions than the child does, just like in therapy. Mm-hmm. And so it's about uh, building connections and um, doing some therapeutic parenting with the parents so that they're on the same page as you whenever they come in and mm-hmm. um, teach the child or the parent how to work in a peaceful way. So pace. Mm-hmm playfulness acceptance curiosity and empathy mm-hmm. and so um helping the parent to understand this child's um experiences through a trauma and attachment lens and so that um by the time you get the child into the room the parent knows how you're going to be speaking and why you might be speaking in a certain way mm-hmm. and you have a sense as well that this parent is a safe person to be in the room to be doing this um this talking therapy and so um then emdr i'm doing my training in september i'm very excited by it i've yeah. been trying to do it for a long time so it's eye movement desensitization desensitization and reprocessing mm. and so it's about um helping a person who has experienced trauma to reprocess those memories that are constantly on their mind or they interfere with their ability mm. uh, to manage and uh, so I haven't done the training yet but uh, um it seems great and um yeah. we've had really good success with um war veterans and uh, trauma victims people yeah. who've experienced um significant trauma mm-hmm. and there is a child and adolescent version of that once you've done your basic training so I'm looking forward to that and those, uh, those things are really helpful because I think for a lot of people that work in in adult mental health they know kind of that you know you get a few sessions on cams but I don't think you get anything of the kind of depth that we need now because we're working so obviously with trauma and the impacts of aftermath I think of people who haven't had um their attachment issues supported to be healed really yeah you know so whilst you know I know EMDR from working with people who've been assaulted and I you know I know the back end of some of the things you're talking about therapy and things like that were quite new to me yeah and I think one of the things I really think is interesting about that is when I when I think about working with some of the people who've been very traumatized, they lose that sense of playfulness. They lose that confidence to be imaginative because they're in lockdown panic mode all the time. Yeah, those almost feel like luxury items that they just can't afford in their processing because they're so hyper vigilant. Mm. The idea of sitting down and just losing yourself in a game is it's almost impossible. So I think it's really interesting to look at some of the things that that you do in your work that would be quite useful for me and mine. Yeah, <laughs> because absolutely. it's not too late, is it, to to look at these issues? Absolutely, and there's also something, and uh, you know, in DDP they talk about this defensive strategies. So we have block trust, mm-hmm. um, but also we have a reduced capacity for comfort, curiosity, and joy. Yeah. 
with um, and so a child who's experienced developmental trauma or somebody who's experienced one-off trauma, something frightening has happened, they may have reduced capacity for comfort, to seek comfort and to be curious about things. They know, they know um, somebody's motive, even though they, ha they haven't talked to someone or they know what's going to happen if they go around that corner or, you know, they have a certainty because that certainty keeps them safe. Mm. So that um, capacity for curiosity needs to be recovered. Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of what you were saying about quiet babies. You know, this idea that just because somebody is still or quiet or not asking questions or not visibly distressed does not mean they're living their best life, does not mean yeah. that they are making choices. Because that's, I think, one of the things that's really important about, about for me, about health is autonomy and being able to make choices about who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And when you work with people who've been very traumatized, they don't have that range of choice. It, the world's closed in on them. Yeah. So whilst they might not be obviously hearing voices or obviously, you know, experiencing that, the fact that somebody can't feel the maximum amount of joy, I think is a, is a health problem. We should be taking it much more seriously than we do. Absolutely. And mm. um, joy um, counteracts that high level of cortisol doesn't it and it helps you to to settle the high levels of adrenaline as well mm -hmm. if you're experiencing um fun and laughter and connection well mm -hmm. then if you're doing that well then you can't it's not so easy to feel those overwhelming negative emotions mm -hmm. i think as well we should want the best for the people we work with we want for ourselves for the people we love we shouldn't be right <clears throat> their distress is at a manageable level for me now like out, out you go it's that yeah. idea about what's the best best life that someone can have and yeah. that's what we should be aiming for i think Dave, i'm aware that we um we haven't actually asked you or spoken to you at all in like half an hour <laughs> have you got anything it's okay nikki <laughs> yeah just just to bring you one comment that we've had i don't know if sarah wants to say anything particular about this comment but just to share it uh rodriguez abru tc uh reparenting parents is such a key issue this is significant barrier faced by social services who often expect from parents something they cannot do without the appropriate support nurture but also understand how parents can both look to children to meet an emotional need connection they lack and hope to get that unconditional love from the child and then obviously feeling very rejected when the child team doesn't reciprocate because they're developing their own personality yeah absolutely I'm not sure what to say to that it was kind of you know it's a yeah. <laughs> rhetorical statement doesn't it you know um absolutely there's so many parents that I have worked with and um, that they really don't they haven't had the life experiences they haven't had somebody who's treated them with gentleness and respect and love um, somebody who's played with them, who's had time for them, who's emotionally available to them. And so whenever they go to do it for their for their children, they're just reinventing the wheel. They're just not sure what to do, what's right, what's not right. Mm. And so um, they try their best mm. um, because they love the children so much. Mm. Most parents absolutely um, love the ground that their children walk on, but they just don't have those skills. And so there's such a need out there. There really is. I, I suppose one of the things that strikes me, you know, whenever I consider this subject, uh, including in the conversation that we're having tonight, is how much time this kind of work takes. Uh, and just thinking of an example I had when I was in my health visiting practice, uh, knowing that a mum was having really sort of big problems with yeah. 
uh, attaching to her daughter. Uh, and I remember it specifically getting a call one day from her saying that I just had to come round because she just couldn't cope anymore. Uh, and when I arrived, uh, the kitchen was just, you know, an, an absolute sight of, uh, you know, there's food sort of thrown everywhere and, you know, such a, you know, such a, a place of sort of despair and distress. And, you know, talking to that mum for, you know, an hour or so and really managing to get down, you know, for the first time into to where that, you know, that, that situation had come from and are describing about having had a, you know, an elder child that died young and, you know, just it was so wrapped up in such you know a, an awful experience that she'd obviously had with her with her other child mm-hmm. uh, and that real fear about never wanting to lose another child again and and you know not being able to form that attachment yeah. and like I say that took you know so many hours to to uncover that and then to talk about it and to try and explore that mm-hmm. to try and get the consultants who dealt with you know, the situation with the, the elder child and and for them to talk to the mum about how she'd done nothing wrong. And this was one of her fears that she completely blamed herself. Mm. That, you know, you know, to, to cut a very long story short, it took such a long time to get that sorted. Mm. And, and I think that kind of kicks into the, the, the other question that I had, that I'm, I'm kind of aware of the work that's going on in England with the first 1001 Critical Days campaign, yeah. uh, Maternal Mental Health Alliance and the work that they're doing yeah. uh, to try and increase the services available. Is, is there kind of a similar movement over, you know, in Ireland that is, is pushing the same? And are you getting the kind of response from legislators that you would hope, you know, for? Or, or, or is it something you're not aware of? It's not anything I'm aware of. I've literally just moved down um, from the north um, at the beginning of the year, um, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And so, but the 1001 days, it covers uh, those first three years, doesn't it? That north to three. Um, what you were saying there reminded me of the Solihull model. Do you know the Solihull model? Yeah, so um, the, the baby and the parent. And then, can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we so can. The baby communicates their needs to the parent. The parent hears that or interprets their needs and meets their needs. Uh-huh. But sometimes the parent's head is full. Uh-huh. And so um, there's stresses going on and uh, they're having a tough time and they can't really hear. There's a block there. They can't really interpret what's going on. They more might yeah. see that this child is being naughty now or just wanting me all the time and I can't give it or whatever it is. And so those those um, issues might be uh, poverty. It might be domestic violence, it might be substance misuse, it might be mental health problems, it might be relationship difficulty. It could be so many different things. Yeah. And so it's so important, like you were saying there, Dave, yeah. where you um you were the person that the child was able to share the information or the parent was able to. Yeah. So the parent told Dave what was going on. He heard it and he created some space here for yeah. the parent then to be able to be available to their child. We don't normally have visual aids. I really love that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> my beautiful We should drawing. have more. <laughs> What I am noticing is we're heading towards 40 minutes, so we do need to start wrapping up. Okay. Um, I guess if we come to everybody, if there's anything you'd like to leave leave our, our guests or audience with tonight, any any uh, advice, um, 
thank you to, to both Sarah for grabbing loads of resources and Dave for tweeting them out. So if there's any, you know, when we're talking about different models and things like that, if you're watching now and you think, actually, I need to, this is an area I'm not as skilled in as I ought to be, do go on Twitter, look under the hashtag MHTV, and you'll find them there. And I think no matter what sort of area of practice you're in, being trauma-informed is really key. Um, and this this understanding where the roots of somebody's experience have come from is probably going to be really helpful to you. So um, I really want to say thank you to Sarah tonight for her help. Um, is there anything you wanted to say, Sarah? Um, I, I think something that I never learned in my training, my nurse training, was about attachment and trauma. Mm. I didn't. And then I started working with children and young people. And uh, attachment and trauma trauma was mentioned a lot but attachment wasn't and we're knowing more and more about attachment and the impact of trauma on attachment now and so it's so important to be learning a little bit more about that read about it understand it read case scenarios it's so helpful Dave anything from you that's supposed to you know, to, to sort of Sarah saying it's not something she did a lot in a training. It's something that I did do a lot of in as a health visitor. And I suppose what's been nice to, tonight is kind of reminding myself of some of that because yeah. you know it's been a while that I've kind of thought about it. You know, in in such depth, yeah. uh, and it is it's such a fascinating subject, isn't it? And I, I do think you know when you consider your existence as a nurse. Mm. and the op opportunities that you have to make real lasting difference mm. I often found that the, the 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 moments and the memories I have of the times when I made the biggest impact was when you could identify those areas of attachment problems and you could actually do things to improve the situation mm. uh, so I mentioned that mum as an example before another mum uh, that I met in another area of my practice who'd uh, witnessed a, a, a relative uh, be assaulted in front of her and the, the impact that had on her and, and the amount of effort it took to un unpick that. But once that work had, had happened, the huge difference that that made to her children's lives was 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 great. And, and I suppose I'm, I'm still really passionate about that, but, you know, in terms of the, the question I asked earlier about the policy stuff, that unless we've got people you know that make these kind of legislative decisions and changes understanding that then you know we're gonna have a real problem about you know pushing this work forward so yeah that, i suppose those are the, the sort of reflections that i've been doing just just to say as well that the the commenter before uh rodriguez abru uh, has just mentioned again about the frozen state we always respond to flight fight and flight but not to the frozen state yeah, so hopefully yeah. they've got that something out of you know listening along mm -hmm. to tonight's episode as well mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing to mention is that obviously this links really nicely to the uh the subject that we're tackling next week yeah. uh, and that is we've got steve trenchard on who is going to be talking about uh trauma and compassion as a framework for mental health nursing so I, I think you know we've, we've quite miraculously married up the, this episode last week's and next week's really really well so you know great work to Nikki and Vanessa for good you know guest booking absolutely and then all it remains to do then is to say good night to you all and thank you very much for your company take care everybody